what time it is. It's time for Ask a Spaceman. I'm your host, Paul Sutter. You've got questions and I've got answers. You know how the show works, but let's give it another flyby. You go online to Twitter or Facebook, use the hashtag Ask a Spaceman, send your questions my way, and I will send answers your way. And also in the way of many, many other people who did not ask that question, but are also curious about space. You can also follow me directly on Twitter or Facebook. My name is Paul Matt Sutter. You can visit askaspaceman.com or email askaspaceman at gmail.com to send your questions. Any way you like to send questions is any way I like to get them. We have one simple goal with this show, complete knowledge of time and space. And on the road to complete knowledge of time and space, we have a question from YouTube. That's right, YouTube. I do videos, youtube.com slash C slash Paul Matt Sutter. Tons of videos about spaceman stuff and also other spacey and sciencey and physicsy fun stuff. I got a question there from YouTube, uh, Romero Brian 83 asking, what has New Horizons learned about Pluto so far? Excellent question. And just totally by coincidence, last night I hosted, or last night in terms of this recording, by the way, last night I hosted a lecture by Dr. Alan Stern, the principal investigator of NASA's New Horizons mission, the mission to Pluto that flew by Pluto about a year and a half ago as of the time of this recording. Now, I swear, I promise you, my listeners, that I wrote 99% of this podcast before last night's lecture. And if there just so happens to be any resemblance between the way I'm going to present this discussion and the way Dr. Stern himself presented the discussion, I swear that's a total coincidence. It's up to you to believe me or not, but that is the truth. So before we get to New Horizons, I want to talk a little bit about Pluto. I've talked about it before. In fact, it was, I think it was my very first episode of this podcast over two years ago. I went into the whole, is Pluto a planet or not a planet debate? So I have nothing more to add about that discussion, but I do want to catch us all up. Pluto, discovered in 1930, basically a little point of light. That was it. A little dot of light. Oh, there it is. There's a whole planet, a whole world yet to be discovered, but it's just a little teensy point of light. We were able to take an image 60-some years after that discovery. We were able to use the Hubble Space Telescope uh, to do an image and uh, the image was really horrible. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that more in a little bit. So, of course, we needed a space probe to go to Pluto. I mean, come on. It's Pluto. It's a planet. We need to visit Pluto and take a peek. It's just how it is. This is what, like, it's just what we do. It's our job as astronomers and astrophysicists and planetary geologists. But over the decades, there'd be missions proposed and then they get canceled or missions uh, that had a good concept but wouldn't go anywhere off and on, off and on for, for years. And in the early 1990s, this was pointed out by a stamp. That's right, a stamp. The U.S. Post Office, uh, every once in a while they do these series of stamps where they, where they profile like uh, or commemorate you know, famous jazz musicians or baseball gloves of history or whatever. I, I don't pay attention to stamps. But 
in these stamps, they, they commemorated the planets and our exploration of the planets. So for each planet, they had one stamp for each planet. This was while Pluto was still considered the ninth planet. Each stamp had a planet and it had the name of the mission that visited that planet, like the Mariner probes for Mars or the Voyager probes for Jupiter, et cetera, et cetera. And then they get to Pluto. And first off, the picture that they used for Pluto was uh, some artist rendition. It was just totally made up. And then underneath it, they said, Pluto, not yet explored. Not yet explored. I mean, how much of a slap in the face is that to NASA? That is straight up abuse. You, you say, oh, yeah, you're NASA. You are explorers. You love to see how the universe works. What about Pluto, huh? What about Pluto? Not yet explored. So over the course of the 90s, there started to be more and more interest in a Pluto mission just based on the grounds of like, oh, yeah, we, we should get around to going there. But since Pluto was considered just the ninth planet, the oddball, the weird planet, the last planet of the solar system, there they're just always were higher priority missions. Like, oh, we got to check out Mars some more. We got to put a rover on Mars. Oh, we got to do a, a sun mission so we can look at solar flares. Everyone said like, yeah, Pluto's great, but it can wait. But then over the course of the 90s, at the same time this interest was starting to build, astronomers realized that Pluto is not alone that there's other objects in the outer solar system. They began to uncover, began to reveal what we now call the Kuiper Belt, this ring of debris that surrounds the gas giants of the solar systems. And in fact, we began to realize that what we used to think of as the outer solar system where the gas giants lived was really in the middle that this Kuiper belt where Pluto lived was an entirely new zone of the solar system, an entirely new region of our own home. It's like not realizing, like you think you have a backyard and not realizing that just over the fence is even more of your own backyard, that there's more stuff to go, that you're not even close to the edge of your own backyard. And we uncovered many, many, many worlds, thousands of worlds, thousands of objects greater than, say, 100 kilometers across. Now, whether these objects are planets or not, that is a whole other debate that I will not get into today because, one, I already got into it, and two, if I want to get into it again, that's a whole other discussion. But we found many, many worlds. So it became apparent that Pluto wasn't the last planet in the solar system, but the first of a new part of the solar system, a new zone of the solar system, the Kuiper Belt. And we had no idea how this Kuiper Belt worked. We knew how the gas giants worked. We knew how the asteroid belt works. We knew how the inner planets worked. We didn't understand a thing about the Kuiper Belt. So that led to the momentum to make a mission to Pluto as a representative of the Kuiper Belt. And so finally, the mission was approved. Many proposals went through. New Horizons won the competition, was launched in January of 2006 at a speed of 36,000 miles per hour, the fastest launch ever. That is 16 kilometers 
per second. Every single second, New Horizons traveled 16 kilometers. That is fast, the fastest spacecraft ever. And yet, to reach Pluto took it nine lonely years. That in itself is one of the best examples to show just how ridiculously vast the solar system, our galaxy, all that, all the astronomical stuff is. The fastest spacecraft ever built, 36,000 miles per hour, 16 kilometers per second, nine years to reach a member of our own solar system. Nine years. And the probe itself was small. In order to get that ridiculously high speed, they had to get the biggest, baddest rocket that they could buy and stick the smallest spacecraft possible on it. And New Horizons itself is the size of a piano with a satellite dish glued on top. A piano. And there's also a big black arm sticking out of the side that provides its power. It's actually New Horizons actually powered by radioactivity, uh, a device called a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. Basically, it just uses a bunch of radioactive plutonium at one end. It decays, it gets hot, and it uses that heat difference to make electricity. They need that device because way out there at the edge of the solar system or the beginning of the Kuiper belt, that is a land of permanent twilight. There just isn't enough sunlight to efficiently power solar panels. You can only pull that off in the inner solar system. The Juno probe is able to pull it off around Jupiter, but that's like the limit of what we can do with solar panels. We need to use some other power source. But even then, you think, oh, it's radioactive. It must have tons of power. Maybe you're not thinking that at all, but I'll pretend you're thinking that so I can correct you at the time of the flyby nine years after launch. I mean, just think about that again. Think of where you were nine years ago. What were you doing nine years ago? Imagine that vast amount of time of nine years, a decade of your life, just traveling from the Earth to Jupiter and then on to Pluto. New Horizons swung by Jupiter in a gravitational assist, took it about a year to reach Jupiter, and then eight more to reach Pluto. Just, I, I can't get over that. Anyway, at the time of the flyby, the power source was delivering a whopping 200 watts of power. 200 watts. That is less, that could not power, that could not power a hairdryer, that could not power a microwave, that could not power a tea kettle, that could not power two TVs at the same time, that could not power a a handful of incandescent light bulbs. 200 watts is not a lot of power. And also to, to save space and weight, the instruments, the scientific instruments on New Horizons were on one side of the spacecraft and the transmitter, the radio dish was on the other. So it could only do one or the other. Either it could do science or it could talk to Earth. So actually during the flyby, that was a nail biting moment because we are out of communication with New Horizons because it was oriented to do science. All the scientific instruments were pointed at Pluto which pointed the dish away from Earth. So basically they said, okay, Pluto, here we go, do this thing. And then we just had to wait a couple hours for it to be done and then turn around, point its dish back at Earth and start sending back all the data and we get the A-OK. -okay. And yes, 
the flyby only lasted a couple hours. Pluto discovered in 1930, decades until we got a halfway decent, horrible image of it with the Hubble Space Telescope. Decade until we were able to get the funding to actually launch it. Decade in space to spend a couple hours by Pluto. There's no way to slow it down. We, it, there's no way we could actually have the fuel and the rockets on board to slow the spacecraft down so we could actually do an orbiter mission. This was straight flyby. One chance and one chance only. No backup missions. Every instrument on the spacecraft itself was backed up, of course, but no backup missions. There's no New Horizons 2 chasing after it a year later. Nothing. That was it. And it worked. And the scientific payload on that spacecraft is it's a data set that will live forever. And it's a data set that will be mined for useful information for at least a generation of scientists. And it's not just pretty pictures. Of course, the pretty pictures are beautiful and captivating and loaded with awesome information. But there were in total seven instruments on the spacecraft itself. There were cameras, there were high energy particle detectors, there were UV spectrometers, there was dust counters. I mean, you're trying to pack as much science into this piano as possible so that when you get that two hour flyby, you can get all the different kinds of information that you possibly can. So you can study, so you can try to answer as many potential questions as possible because we kind of had no idea what we were in for. Before New Horizons, New Horizons passed by Pluto on July 14th, 2015. As of July 13th, 2015, we knew some stuff about Pluto, but we basically didn't know anything. We knew it was a planet or not. We'll get that's a different show, like I said. We knew its size, kinda. There was some, you know, there were some error bars on that. There was some uncertainty on that. It's about the size of half of our moon. It could fit in North America. We knew its orbit, uh, although we were beginning to realize it was highly elliptical. Uh, it was tilted relative to the rest of the solar system. It was also chaotic. Its orbit probably changes very erratically over the course of millions of years. We knew Pluto had an atmosphere because we could see the light from distant stars pass near Pluto, and we could see how the light was different, and we could tell that the volume of space near Pluto was filled with something, and we were able to figure out what that stuff was. We knew that Pluto had moons, Charon, Hydra, Nix, Kerberos, and Styx. We had some guesses about the formation of Pluto. We think maybe Pluto formed closer into the sun way back in the day. Then when the giant planets began to migrate to the outer solar system, it pushed Pluto and all its Kuiper Belt friends out to the outskirts. This is a model, by the way, called the Nice model of the formation of the solar system. Fascinating model, deserves its own show. If any of you want to ask, please do about how our solar system was formed. That's a great topic for another episode. We had done this super hard work with the Hubble to try to get a rough image 
of Pluto. We knew after these images, we couldn't like pick out features, but we knew there were variations on the surface. We knew there were brightness variations, that there were darker patches and lighter patches. And we could tell by the light that bounced off Pluto. We could look at that. We could do spectroscopy. We could figure out elements. We knew that the surface involved nitrogen, ice, and uh, water, ice, and some carbon monoxide, ice, and some methane, ice. There's a lot of ices in the outer solar system. Uh, we're used to water ice, and we're used to carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide ice as dry ice. We're not so used to methane ice. Like, imagine it being so cold out that gas freezes into a solid. We're not so used to nitrogen ice either. We're used to atmospheric gaseous nitrogen. If you've ever played with liquid nitrogen, you have to get super cold, like 320 degrees below zero to get liquid nitrogen. You have to make it even colder to make it frozen. But we knew there was this mixture on the surface, and that's about it. So, of course, in this mission, it had to be as flexible as possible because... What kind of, what, what should we expect? We don't know. We've never done this before. This is our first time visiting the Kuiper Belt. So we got to be prepared for anything. So we needed a variety of devices and experiments and detectors to get at the science of Pluto. Because we, like I said, we only get one shot. Even then, with this scant knowledge of Pluto, most of that was learned in the 90s when we started making more detailed observations of Pluto and the other objects in the Kuiper Belt. But the general feeling as of July 13th, 2015, the day before the flyby, the general feeling was that Pluto was, you know, like the moon, only colder. Our moon is old and cold and dead hasn't done anything interesting in billions of years. It's just got a cratered surface. All its features, all its planes, its dark spots, its light spots were set billions of years ago when it cooled off shortly after the formation of the solar system. It's boring from a planetary geology standpoint. Like, yeah, maybe we'll learn something about the Kuiper Belt from the crater impacts on Pluto. And maybe that's it. It's like the moon, but way even colder because it's super far from the sun. And it is hard to describe how different our view of Pluto is now thanks to New Horizons. First, in terms of the amount of data, it's like going from a bare, blurry, hazy distance sketch to a full HD, literally because of the number of pixels, even better than HD portrait. The difference between the Hubble images in the 90s and the New Horizons images is 5,000 times better resolution. 5,000 times better. Going from being able to resolve features on the size of, say, a country, like imagine taking a picture of the Earth and only being able to see blobs the size of countries and, and decent-sized countries, not the little ones, to having the resolution of, you know, a football field. You feel free to substitute your own sports arena metaphor of your choice. Going from countries down to, like, city blocks 
and smaller. And what we learned with the very first images that New Horizons sent back, the very first images, the, what we immediately learned, the big takeaway that I want you to you know, take away from this episode is that Pluto is alive. Pluto is not a cold, dead, unchanged world. Pluto is warm. Pluto is active. Pluto is alive. It is unlike anything we've seen in the solar system. It broke all expectations. For starters, let's talk about the color. Pluto is pink. Pink. Pluto, the planet, is not gray. It's not brown. It's not black. It is pink. Who ordered that? Who decided that this distant, icy world should be pink? And it's not just one shade of pink. There's dark reddishish bits. There's ones that are, you know, pretty tannish, brownish. There's some nice light hot pink. I'm sure there's creative names for all these colors. Almost the entire surface of Pluto is solid nitrogen ice, a crust of nitrogen ice. But there's also, uh, and nitrogen ice is nice and glowy. Nitrogen ice looks a lot like snow. It's, it's very white. It's very reflective. But there's also methane ices and ethane ices, which are pretty common out there. And it turns out if you hit methane and ethane with some ultraviolet light from the sun, you make some different uh, organic compounds. You make some different chemical mixtures called tholins that are pinkish and reddish. In fact, uh, uh, Carl Sagan himself was one of the first people to figure this out. He did some laboratory experiments uh, to show this chemical process. Turns out it's a relatively common process in the outer solar system. There are some moons of the gas giants, especially around Neptune and Uranus, that have pinkish or reddish splotches. But basically all of Pluto is pink. All of Pluto is covered in these tholins. And the temperature around or the temperature at Pluto is around 40 Kelvin, just 40 Kelvin above absolute zero, which is uh, very cold on the Fahrenheit scale, just or Celsius scale, just incredibly cold. And that allows nitrogen to form a solid. So you have gaseous methane and ethane hanging around the atmosphere. They get hit by ultraviolet light. They, they transform uh, into these things called tholins. Uh, and then it's also cold enough that they condense down and form solid. And so they can kind of pile on, kind of dust onto the surface and give that nitrogen that nice, lovely, rosy color. On the surface, though, it's not smooth. There are fractures. There are cracks. There are fault lines. You know signs of tectonic activity, just like on the Earth. There are suggestions that beneath this frozen nitrogen crust, there is a mantle made of water ice just below it. There are some large surface crea- uh, craters, and so craters indicate an old surface because if you can, if you're hit by a bunch of craters, a bunch of meteorites and things like that, and, but you resurface if you're if you're able to refresh your surface like the Earth does or like Europa does, then you know you have a young surface. You're geologically active. If there's lots of craters like on the Moon, then you know you have an old surface. So there are parts of Pluto that have lots of craters. 
but there are parts of Pluto that have no craters at all. There are fluted slopes, there are valley networks, there are plateaus, there are mountains, there's glacial flow, there's erosion, there's cliffs that appear to be retreating, uncovering younger patches. There are small plains of nitrogen ice with rugged highlands of methane and water ice surrounding it. It's this fantastic jumbled mix of old and young features, like part of, parts of Pluto's surface are as old and ancient as the solar system itself. And some parts of Pluto are, honestly, we don't know how young they are. We honestly don't know. If there's no craters on the surface at all, we honestly don't know. That surface could be a million years old. That surface could be a thousand years old. It's an open question. This, the surface of Pluto is this amazing contradiction of old and young. A contradiction like the fact that I don't have advertisers, but still I find horrible ways to plug Patreon so you can help contribute to the show, patreon.com slash Sutter. It's your contributions that help this show and help all of my outreach activities get funded, get going, get out there to spread the love of science. Uh, that's what I do. That's my mission. That's And you're helping me make that mission possible on patreon.com slash Sutter. But I don't accept advertisers. But I do have to plug patreon.com slash Sutter. Thank you very much. So like I said, there are craters uh, scattered here and there on Pluto. And there's also these large dark patches with some of the most fantastic names in the solar system. Check this out, the, the Cthulhu Regio, the Balrog Macula, the Brass Knuckles. I, man, I wish I was a part of the naming committee because I would have loved to just come up with creative, dark, evil sounding names. Like the, there's this whole vibe on Pluto. Pluto is the Greek god of the underworld. So we're, we there's this tendency to name stuff on Pluto or around Pluto after other mythical creatures that are evil or dark or malicious. Uh, that doesn't apply everywhere. I guess we ran out of evil characters. So we started naming stuff after nice people and real people and real nice people. Uh, but I mean, come on, the Balrog Macula. What a fantastic name. I wish I lived on Balrog Macula Drive. I wish my address was, well, I don't know what the number would be. I'll have to think about a number. But I just want to live. I just want to give that address. Like, yes, please address it to uh, Paul Sutter, Balrog Macula Drive, Columbus, Ohio. That would be great. And these regions, we, we basically don't know a lot about these regions. They're dark, maybe from a heavy buildup of tholins, of these pinkish-reddish materials that built up so much they become almost a tar. They look black. They look dark brown. That's an idea why those regions built up with tholins and other regions didn't. We have no idea. And of course, there is the now iconic heart-shaped features on Pluto. One of the most striking and recognizable features pretty much of any planet. But let that fact sink in for a moment. This world on the edge of our solar system, at the edge of the Kuiper Belt, lay completely unknown for millennia. Our ancestors did not know of the existence of Pluto. 
and we've only known about it for a few decades, now has a landmark recognizable feature. We've gone with one mission from basically a speck of light to naming features and identifying features and having trademarked like, oh yeah, that's the heart of Pluto. Everyone knows that. It has a name though. It's not officially called a heart. Of course, it's called the Tombaugh region named after good old Clyde Tombaugh who discovered Pluto in 1930. That's the name we give to the whole entire heart, but it's split into two parts. On the west part is a very smooth plane that we call Sputnik Planitia. And I, that's a Latin word. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. Planitia. And on the west is a kind of a, a, or sorry, on the east is like a crumbly uplands known as chaos terrain. We see Basically, anytime we see terrain on a distant world that's all jumbled up, we call it chaos terrain because that sounds cooler than jumbled up terrain, I guess. So it's split into to those two parts, a very smooth part and a very jumbly part. Not a lot of craters in either part, though. They just jumbles or smooth plane. I would call the Sputnik Planitia a vast, almost entirely frozen sea of nitrogen. A nitrogen glacier that is the size of the state of Texas in its smoothness tells us that it is incredibly young. There is not a single crater in that entire region, not a little one, not a big one, none of them, no craters at all in the Sputnik Planitia, but it is broken up into hundreds of hexagonal cells with these crevices between the cells. I'm not making this up. There are hexagonal cells on this frozen, almost frozen glacial plane of nitrogen on the surface of Pluto. Cells, hexagonal cells. We start looking for examples. What, you know, what, what, what could this possibly be? Where else in the solar system has cells? What has cells? Well, the sun has cells. The surface of the sun has cells on it. These are convection cells. It's hot on the inside and cold on the outside. It's fluid or a plasma in the case of the sun. And you naturally get these convection cells. You can do the same thing. Take a pot of water, heat it on the bottom, let it be cold on top. You make convection cells. Convection cells on Pluto. That tells us directly unavoidably, unmistakably, that Pluto is warm on the inside. Pluto is warm on the inside. And this broad plane that we call the Sputnik Planitia isn't a hard crust. It's churning. It's moving. It's, it's very slow, and it is very cold. I don't want you to get to think that this, these cells, these convection cells in the Sputnik Planitia, like you could just sit and watch them. You'd see them bubbling up and rising up like a, a cauldron or something. It's not like that. This is the outer edge of the solar system. Things move a lot slower back there. It is very, very, very cold. But Pluto on the inside is warm, at least warmer than the outside. And there's this region on Pluto that is convecting. On the edges of this Sputnik 
plane. I'll just call it plane. Why do we always have to use Latin words? On the edges of the, of the Sputnik plane are mountain ranges. Yeah, mountain ranges made of ice, water ice. Good old, put it in your glass so you can have a refreshing drink, water ice. Mountains made of ice as tall as Mount Everest. Kilometers high. This region is young too. There's no craters in these mountainous regions either, which means it's relatively new too. So we think these mountains form from tectonic activity, tectonic activity on Pluto. We think the icy mantle, which sits underneath that nitrogen crust, this water ice mantle somehow pokes through the crust, gets all jumbled, broken apart. Some of these pieces break off and can even fall into the, and we see it. We see like landslides made of ice. We see the tracks that they carved as they fell. Some have even fallen into the Sputnik plane and they get carried by these convection currents, these cells that are slowly gyrating, slowly boiling, taking eons to move, but they move these boulders made of ice and deposit them into clumps. So we see in the crevices, in the cracks between these hexagonal convection cells, we see buildup of, of icy rocks. They're broken off from the nearby mountains and carried over the course of millions of years into these crevices. At these temperatures, at 40 Kelvin above absolute zero, water ice, we usually think of water ice as hard, but not that hard. Like a, you could break it if you bite it, like your teeth can break ice. But at those temperatures, water ice is as hard as rock. So just like on Earth, you can use rocks to build a mountain because rocks are strong enough. So at those temperatures on the edge of the outer solar system, water ice is hard enough that you can use it to build mountains. But even though it's very hard, it's less dense than the frozen nitrogen itself. So some of these mountains are floating. Yeah. You know what? Sometimes, sometimes... When you're an astrophysicist, you get used to weird stuff. You get used to crazy stuff. You get used to outlandish concepts that are kind of beyond normal human understanding or conception. And this is one of those cases. I just give up. Like, you you win this round, nature. That is just too weird for me. Floating ice mountains on Pluto. I'm just going to shrug my shoulders and accept the universe for what it is. I, how can I get across how mind-blowing that is? The floating ice mountains of Pluto. Mountains made of ice floating on a sea of nitrogen ice. Just like icebergs float on water, except, you know, way colder and way slower. The floating ice mountains of Pluto. All right. There it is. Why is this Sputnik plane so different from the rest of Pluto? Because we do see craters on Pluto. We do see these dark regions on Pluto. We see these mountainous, jumbled up chaos terrain on Pluto. Why is the Sputnik plane special? It's not like there's two or three Sputnik planes on Pluto. There only seems to be the one. It's likely connected to the impact of the form Charon and the other moons. And I'll, and I'll get more on that in a second. 
if there is a subsurface ocean, oh, by the way, did I mention that we think Pluto might have a liquid water ocean underneath the crust? Yeah, I may have skipped over that, and that seems kind of important. I'll talk more about that in a second. If there is a subsurface ocean, then after this giant impact, when Pluto was very, very young, it could have welled up from the hole, refroze, and then nitrogen ice would have piled on there, sinking the crust below it. So putting pressure on the crust because of its weight, just like we see glaciers do this on continental crust, just the weight of them pushes down on the crust. And that might have caused a permanent feature that's always refreshing itself. So we think the Sputnik plane formed a long time ago, but continues to refresh itself today. It's like the crust of Pluto was damaged from this collision. And now there's an open wound on the surface of Pluto that never heals. The crust can't recover from that impact even after billions of years. It's still a gaping, open, festering, frozen nitrogen wound on Pluto. Or not. You know what? This is half speculation because we're just going off the first set of images we've ever had of Pluto. There are some models that suggest it's like a natural feature. You don't need a collision to form it. Maybe just because of the tidal locking, uh, Pluto and Charon always face each other. There's a part of Pluto that's always darker, therefore colder than average. And that spot is on the opposite side of Charon on Pluto, and that's exactly where the Sputnik plane is. That's another viable model. Who knows? This is new stuff, folks. We're in unexplored territory. We're just chewing on our first set of images and data from this world. We're still trying to make heads and tails of it. Did I mention the ice volcanoes? No, I did not mention the ice volcanoes. Ice volcanoes, cryovolcanoes, one of my favorite words in astronomy and astrophysics, cryovolcanoes, it means cold volcano. On Earth, we have volcanoes, they're made of rock. Every once in a while, they spit out liquid rock, which we call magma. So you got cold rock on the outside, and it spits out hot rock. Well, you can do the same thing with ice. You can have cold ice to make up the... the volcano itself, and it can spit out sometimes, like say, water. There's two features in particular, Wright Mons and Picard Mons. Uh, they're a few kilometers high and they have deep depressions and we're pretty sure they're ice volcanoes. They didn't appear to be active when New Horizons flew by. It's not like they were spitting out ice or water at the time. So, so we don't know if they're like active right now. Maybe the last time they blew was a million years ago or a billion years ago, or maybe it was... July 12th, 2015, and we just missed it by a couple days. All of these bits, the Sputnik plane, the cryovolcano, all the other young features on Pluto, point to an interesting fact. That Pluto isn't actually an icy world. Yes, it's covered with ice. And we talk about it, we're talking about nitrogen ice and methane ice and water ice, but the core is actually rocky. The core is made of rock, just like the core of the earth is made of rock, just like the core of the moon is made of rock. What's so much rock doing in the outer parts of the solar system? We don't know. So we think Pluto has a core of rock. 
surrounded by an icy mantle that sometimes gets shoved up to form those mountain chains, nitrogen ice crust, and between those, maybe a liquid water ocean. That is very, we're not exactly sure about that liquid water ocean. That's based on some models, based on some observations about how Pluto rotates, how it spins, its relationship with Charon. And so that's a whole other fascinating discussion about liquid water inside of Pluto. But even without the liquid water ocean, Pluto is warm. Pluto is warm enough to power this refreshing of the surface of the Sputnik plane, to power the uplift of these ice mountains as they punch holes in the nitrogen crust from below. That takes energy. Where does it get that energy? We thought for a long time that the only worlds that could even have a chance of being active were in the inner solar system. It's where things are hot and warm. Then we discovered that the moons of the outer planets can also be hot and warm from tidal interactions with their parents. So like Io, Europa, Enceladus, all those guys. Pluto has no tidal interactions, has no giant planets. It's so far away from the sun that the sun just is barely another star. What's keeping it warm? It must be some combination of leftover heat from its formation billions of years ago, plus some radioactive decay. But there's lots of cold, dead moons in the solar system that are bigger than Pluto. How does Pluto stay warm? We don't know. Something's keeping it alive, but we're not sure what is. And we don't know if that's common. We don't know if basically every largish object in the Kuiper belt is going to be warm and have young features and be interesting or not. Is Pluto the exception or the rule? We don't know. That's on the inside. On the outside, Pluto has an atmosphere made of nitrogen. I know we talked about nitrogen being a solid at these temperatures. Actually, at these temperatures, nitrogen is at its triple point, which means it could stably be a, a, both a solid, a liquid, and a gas. So we've got nitrogen in the atmosphere. It's very, very deep too. The atmosphere of Pluto is very thin. It's not like you could actually breathe there or have any air, decent air pressure, but it's wider or thicker than Pluto itself spills onto Charon too. It's it's nearby moon and it's a uh, blue. Yeah, yeah, Pluto has a blue atmosphere. I mean, it's air after all. What do you think you're breathing right now? You're breathing nitrogen, same exact nitrogen that's surrounding Pluto. It's got clouds too, thought I'd mention that. Uh there's these weird layers kind of stacked together. It looks like uh there's a bunch of concentric shells that make up Pluto's atmosphere. It's also hazy. Didn't ask for that. There are some more complex molecules, uh, some larger molecules other than nitrogen floating around the atmosphere. It's like a kind of slightly smoggy on Pluto. We thought for a long time that the atmosphere might only activate when Pluto is close to the sun. You know, Pluto's orbit is very, very eccentric. It's very elliptical. So it's closer and further from the sun over the course of its orbit. Maybe when it's closer, it gets warm enough. Some of that ice... Uh, sublimates goes up to become a gas you get a nice atmosphere then it, when it moves back out to the more distant part of its orbit kind of collapses back and the atmosphere goes away but according to new horizons that doesn't appear to happen at all 
Right now, Pluto is at the point in its orbit where it's starting to move further away, and its atmosphere is actually getting more dense with time. There's getting more air, not less, as it's getting colder. Okay, whatever. Might be because of its extreme tilt. There, you know, like the, the the north side always faces the sun, so it always has excess nitrogen. Like we just don't know. We don't understand why Pluto has this atmosphere. There are some models that suggest, actually, more than suggest, there are observations. There are frozen lake beds on Pluto, with shorelines and everything. Like imagine if you took a lake and you froze it, which happens on Earth, and you took a picture from it from space. You would see, you say, oh, yeah, that's a lake. It's just frozen over right now. But back in the day, it used to be liquid. Like last summer, it was liquid. Now this winter, it's frozen over. There are frozen, very obvious frozen lake beds of nitrogen on Pluto, which means in the past they had to be liquid. In order to be liquid, there has to be sufficient air pressure, like the air pressure of, say, at least Mars in the recent past. In the recent past, Pluto had an atmosphere thick enough to support liquid on its surface. Pluto is far, far stranger than anyone expected. And we only just finished downloading the data. Remember, we only have 200 watts of power to power that transmitter back to Earth. Bit by bit, the data from the flyby have been coming back took over a year to make its way back to Earth, all the data, but we finally have it. We've just started. We've just started chewing into it. This is just the first blush. It's been a year and a half, basically. It's our first pass at the data. Our first pass is science. There's still tons to digest. We just don't understand this planet. Excuse me, this world. What about Sharon, too? If you've seen Sharon, images of Sharon, it's obviously a broken world. There's a giant crack running across the equator. And it's bad enough, it makes you think like, oh, what happened to that one? Man, it looks like it got beat with an ugly stick pretty hard. I mean, that is not a pretty looking world. Let's be honest. Likely, Pluto suffered a giant impact early in its history. All of its satellites, all of its moons are in the same plane, all share angular momentum. The fact that Pluto is tipped over in its orbit, so its North Pole always kind of faces the sun, that all points towards a giant impact. So Charon is like a piece of Pluto ripped off. Maybe that crack started small, but as the heat of that collision and its formation left it, it started to cool. Uh, that crack started to spread apart. It maybe it had very early on a liquid water ocean underneath the crust that, but that froze and then the freezing, the water expanded and literally cracked the crust open like an egg. We see landslides. We see rugged and smooth features. We see uh, a ruddy, a reddish cap on the pole, like a deposited tholins, we think from Pluto making its way to Charon, but it's all old. It looks like Charon was shaped very early on in its formation, but then locked in doesn't look like Sharon has changed in billions of years. Sharon is dead, for all intents and purposes, but Pluto is still alive. The exact same environment, exact same orbit, distance from the sun, Sharon's half the size of Pluto. Sharon is dead, but Pluto is alive. What gives? We don't know. We do know that Pluto is nothing like the moon. 
It's nothing like Ceres. It's nothing like anything in the asteroid belt. It's nothing like most of the smaller objects in the solar system. It might have liquid water. Portions, parts of its surface are young and fresh. It has a deep atmosphere that might occasionally grow thick enough to support liquid water on the surface. Pluto is less like Mercury. Mercury is hot, but it's dead. Venus is hot, but dead. Mars is cool to cold, mostly dead. Pluto isn't like any of those planets. Pluto's more like Earth. Pluto's more like a cold, slow version of Earth. And we're barely scratching the surface. Literally. Speaking of cold, I'm going to Iceland February of 2018 to go hunting for Aurora, and you can come with me. Please go to astrotouring.com to find out more about the tour. Fraser Kane of Universe Today is coming with me because we thought it'd be a fun adventure. And we'll both lead the tour. We'll go Aurora hunting. We'll talk about geology. We'll talk about geophysics. And I'll talk about Pluto and what makes Earth very similar to Pluto on that trip. Just ask away. It's going to be a great time. It's limited to 40 people tops. And as of right now, we're uh, we're almost at capacity, but please put in a reservation so you get, get your name in. Uh, it'll be a super fun trip where we can just geek out for a week. It's going to be a great time. Go to astrotouring.com. And, of course, thanks to all my Patreon contributors, especially the top ones this month, Helgi B, Justin G, Justin R, Jerry, Kevin O, Jessica K, and Michael Z. It's your contributions that make this show possible, that make all of my outreach science outreach stuff possible it's all because of you i can't thank you enough patreon.com slash pm sutter thanks again to romero brian 83 on youtube for the excellent question for today's episode you can ask your own by going to askspaceman.com askspaceman at gmail.com hashtag askspaceman on twitter and facebook following me on twitter and facebook my name is paul matt sutter i'll see you next time for more complete knowledge of time and space So is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm going to get you that budget. Just as soon as... What? Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart, Brian.